It all started in a garden for us. A sinless man who'd been given by God the Father a task of monumental proportion now wrestled with the tempter. The tempter, crafty though he was, did not direct his temptation exclusively to the man, but also through his companion. With his eyes turned heavenward, this sinless man was about to declare the same words that we have recited in both word and deed in our lives throughout. He took the fruit, gazed towards the skies, and declared, Not yours, but my will be done. And in that decisive moment, having lost the battle with temptation, he bit into the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and drank deep its juices, not knowing at the time he was also drinking deep from the cup of God's wrath at that very moment. For in sinning against his maker, this once sinless man became the prototype for all of our sin. Having followed in the footsteps of Eve and of Adam, so too we all have declared with our voice, with our lives, not yours, but my will be done. You see, every single one of us, for a split second in time, thinks that we know better than God. We think that when we see the great temptations before us, that we know better than God. We see that something is useful for food, or pleasing to the eye, or useful for gaining knowledge, and we fall into the same trap as has been laid for humanity since the garden. We want to indulge the flesh. We want to indulge the eyes. We want to indulge the pride of life. And so like Adam, we declare, no, not yours, but my will be done. And in our relentless pursuit of our own will, of our own aggrandizement, we find ourselves farther and farther from God. By doing that which he commands us not to, or just by trying to do that which he commands us to do, but falling short, we find ourselves on the outs with God. We find ourselves on the outs with God, separated from him since he is perfect and we are not. He is holy and we are sinful. He is perfect and we are finite. We cannot measure up to him no matter how hard we try, but God's plan is good and God's plan accounted for our relentless pursuit of pride and God's plan from eternity past was not to lay everything on the shoulders of this sinless man but to lay everything on the shoulders of the next sinless man you see even though our predicament started in the garden so did our reckoning with grace it all started in the garden for us a sinless man given by God the Father a monumental task, wrestled with the tempter. And crafty though he was, the tempter did not directly tempt him exclusively, but also used his companions. With his eyes turned heavenward, this sinless man declared the words that all of us at one time have recited in both word and deed in our lives following 
the echo of prayer that he explained so many years before. And seeing all that was before him, he declared, eyes heavenward, not mine, but your will be done. And having made the decision, the first sinless man could not. This second sinless man, the second Adam, this Jesus, decided once and for all that he would die for our sins once and for all. And even though he drank the cup on Calvary, he drank the cup of God's wrath on Calvary, he made the decision to do so in the Garden of Gethsemane. We start our series on Easter in the Garden because it always starts in the Garden. Our problem starts in the garden, and God's glorious solution starts in the garden. This year, our intent is to march through the passion narrative of Jesus, starting at the garden, and as we sang this morning, declaring His victory over death, over the grave, over every enemy, because up from the grave He arose. We know the resurrection's coming. But before we get to the power of the resurrection, we have to walk through the sorrow and the agony of Jesus' discontent and disquiet. We have to walk through the despicable nature of humanity revealing itself in the brutality leveled against our Lord. We have to walk through the cup of God's wrath poured out so unendlessly on Jesus in order for us to understand the grace from which we drink daily to fully appreciate what God has done for us. So yes, it starts in the garden. Having just given the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover, getting ready for the Passover, Jesus declared that His body would be given for them, that His blood would be shed for them. And after, He gathered His disciples and they left the upper room and crossed the Kidron Valley and made their way to the Mount of Olives, to the spot that Jesus regularly frequented, the Garden of Gethsemane. Crossing over the Kidron Valley, they crossed the river that the next day would soon turn red. For the Kidron Brook was the refuse exit point for the temple. And every one of those sacrifices that would be shed, all that blood that would be shed and dropped would find its way through the Kidron Brook. And as Jesus crossed it, His disciples had no idea, even though He tried to explain it to them, that it would be His blood that would soon be shed. He found Himself at the garden the place that he'd gone many, many times to teach with his disciples. And he asked his friends to stay and keep watch, to pray. And he gathered James and John and Peter, and he called his closest three friends. And he said, stay awake and pray with me. And he went just a stone's throw down, and he prayed. And when he prayed, Jesus cried out to the Father, asking, Father, take this cup from me if it's possible. Yet, not mine, but your will be done. And he came back and he saw his disciples sleeping. And he said, can't you keep your eyes open for just an hour? 
Keep watch so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, Jesus went back to pray. And once again, his companions went back to sleep. And Jesus cried out again, Father, if it's possible that there's another way, if it's possible that this cup can be taken from me and there's a different way, oh, please, but not mine, only your will be done. And coming back, he found his disciples asleep yet again. A third time, he commanded them to stay awake and pray. And a third time, they failed him. And coming back, having said the same thing and the same prayer to God Almighty, remembering how he taught his disciples to pray all those years before by saying, here's how you can pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And yet it was his disciples who fell into temptation, who could not keep their eyes awake And the third time, having come back, Jesus said, Arise, my betrayer comes. For Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be. For Judas knew that Jesus taught regularly in the spot. And having brought with him an entire detachment of soldiers comprised both of the Pharisaic guard and of Roman soldiers who had flooded the town to get ready for Passover, Judas came with the hundreds, armed with clubs and swords, lanterns and torches. They came to arrest a peasant preacher. Knowing what was happening, Jesus said, my betrayer comes. And instead of passively waiting for Judas and the cohort to come, Jesus boldly stands forward, asking, who is it you're here for? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus takes just a beat, remembering that it has always been this way. That every time the Son of Man faces tremendous humiliation that goes beyond the mere, the mere humiliation of even having to take on human flesh, he remembers and recalls the divine glory that accompanies it. And in the microsecond that it takes him to think through these thoughts, thoughts like, born a humble baby, yet declared by angels, Laid in a manger, yet announced by a star. Submitting to baptism as though I was a sinner, yet hearing the voice of the Father declare me as His own, arising from the water. Sleeping when tired, but arising to calm the storm that frightened my friends. Soon. To experience death myself, only to come forward out of the grave, just as I wept at the tomb for Lazarus and called life from death. Now, I'm about to submit myself to arrest to these made in my image who understand me not. They must see a tiny beam of what they don't understand. Who is it you're here for, he asks. 
Jesus of Nazareth, and declaring the powerful name of God that God himself recited from Exodus 3, verse 14, Jesus says, I am! And miraculously, despite all that they came to do, hearts flooded with evil, the divine power of the divine name spoken by the divine man himself knocked them down. And then, seeing them cower before him, recited once again the question, who is it you're here for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And he goes with them. But not before, not before one of those hotheads who couldn't stay awake decided to try to take matters into his own hands. And Peter, who wielded the sword, chopped off the right ear of a high priest guard named Malchus, seeing that things were about to devolve in a very, very serious way. Jesus miraculously healed this man's ear and says, I will come with you. Do not let any harm come to those of mine. And Jesus goes. The closest example that I can picture that I could possibly see is from one of my favorite movies. In the 2013 movie Man of Steel, Superman condescends himself to wear human, human chains. And he walks with the army to go strategize a plan. At any point, he could just rip the handcuffs. At any point, Jesus could call down a legion of a thousand angels. At any point, Jesus could just flex his divine miraculous might, and yet Jesus doesn't. Because Jesus could see what that first sinless man could not. What I'd like to do on this, our very first Easter resurrection series, is ask a couple of questions, all starting with, can you see? Can you see what's happening? Can you see the Father's will? Can you see how Christ will compel? Can you see how the Spirit will lead? And as we march through this series, which will take us to Easter and beyond, we will look for the will of the Father. We will see if we are compelled by the Christ, and we will see how the Spirit leads. But today, we must find our text. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. If you're able, would you stand in awe of God's word for the reading of Scripture, which will immediately be followed by John chapter 18, verses 2 through 12. The word of the Lord declared. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
When he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man has delivered it to the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And then the story continues in John 18. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Judas, knowing, or Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and bound him. You may be seated. They arrested Jesus and bound him, but not before all the events transpired that were so, so important. The first event that I want us to evaluate from the pages of Scripture is the question concerning the prayer that Jesus recites in the garden three times. Here's the question. Can you see that God the Father's will is for Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath? Can you see that in this text? Can you see it clearly displayed? Or do we need more context from the Word of God? It is the Father's will that Jesus drink this cup. It is the Father's will that Jesus drink this cup. And this cup is the cup of God's wrath. This is the solution to the problem that humanity has been plagued by since the beginning. Since the first garden. The will of the Father is to crush the Son No wonder all of this takes place at the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the olive crush, the olive press. So Jesus is going, and he will be crushed, and that crushing does not start on the cross, it starts in the garden. For here, he has to make his final choice. And here the choice is very clear. There is a temptation for Jesus to avoid drinking the cup of God's wrath. Jesus has never experienced God's wrath. Jesus has never been separated from the Father. Do you understand that from eternity past, Christ the Son has existed with God the Father and God the Spirit in perfect communion, never having been separated from one another. It was a monumental step just for Jesus to don human flesh and come into humanity itself. Yet still, in human flesh, clothed in human garb, Jesus, the God-man, the sinless man, still had the Spirit guiding him, still had the Father calling out to him, still had the word that he had inspired before him. His connection with the Father and the Spirit remained strong, and yet he knew what was before him. 
He was about to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cup of God's wrath would most assuredly be poured out. And the cup of God's wrath is a theme throughout the Bible that's very, very important. It starts in the Old Testament. There are a couple of excellent passages. One is from Isaiah 51 verse 17 which says, Awake! Awake! Rise up, Jerusalem! You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup of God's wrath is one that none of us should ever deign from which to drink. And yet it is the cup that many will be forced to drink. In fact, Jeremiah 25, 15 says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Oh, God's wrath is coming. And God's wrath is oftentimes described as the contents of the cup. The cup that will be forced to be drunk. The cup that will be poured out on them. The cup of God's wrath is there. That's why Jesus says, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's why he asks, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken from me and still accomplish what we need, then gladly will I drink it. He's asking to see if this is the only way. And the word possible is used. The word possible is very, very interesting to me for lots of people seem to misunderstand God and possibility. After all, Jesus did say in Matthew 19, 26, when he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus said this, with God, all things are possible. Now, this is in the very context of, with man, this is impossible, yet with God, all things are possible. So Jesus is directly talking about things that man cannot do, that God can. And this is also in the very specific context of rich people being willing to part with their money to please God Almighty. And yet, some people like to say, oh, see, see, Jesus says anything is possible for God. God can do anything. God can do anything. There are many things that God cannot do. God cannot violate his own nature. God cannot do that which is broadly, logically impossible for God to do. In fact, the Bible itself declares that it's impossible for God to lie. It says so in Hebrews 6, 18. So God can't lie. It is impossible for God to lie. If God were to try to lie, it could not work. It does not work. God cannot lie. It is impossible. It is also impossible, according to Hebrews 11, verse 6, to please God without faith. God cannot be pleased in you or me or any of us without faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It is literally impossible for God to be pleased with us if we do not have faith. Just as it is literally impossible for God to lie. So of course Jesus says with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Yes, given All things that are within the realm of broadly logical possibility for the divine being. Among things that do not count, lying and being pleased with those without faith. But that's not all. There's something else. And that something else that's impossible is for God to save us without the cup of his wrath being poured out. It says so in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 9, the same book that we've just been looking at, verse 22 says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, if there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, blood must be shed. If there is no being pleased with us without our faith, we must have faith. 
If it is impossible for God to lie and God has declared, this is what I want you to do, place your faith in the blood sacrifice of my own son, then that is the only way for us to be right with him. That's it. That's absolutely it. You can't work your way to God. You can't try really hard to be good. You can't go to church on Christmas and Easter. You can't give your check and be good. None of that works. None of that works. The only thing that works is to place your faith in the sacrifice of his son. In fact, he declares in the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And that's why God declared earlier, here's what you have to do to escape the bonds of slavery from Egypt. Take that sinless, perfect, blemishless lamb and slit its throat. Drain its blood and cover your doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. And I will pass over, and you will not experience the final of my plagues that I am using to destroy and discredit the false gods of Egypt. Do this not, and your firstborn will be killed as well. And so the very first Passover... The same Passover that's commemorated in a meal of unleavened bread and wine and different things was taken 1,500 years before Jesus came to earth. And then, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, the true Passover lamb, takes the Passover meal with his friends. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of many. He takes the bread this is my bread, this is my body, given for you. Yes, Jesus understands that he must drink the cup of God's wrath. But he asks, Father, is it possible? Is it possible? Is there another way? And he knows full well the answer. There is no other way. And that's why the Apostle Paul will declare in Romans chapter 3, God the Father presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. And when we receive that which comes from the shedding of Christ's blood, God's glorious grace, our atonement with Him is possible. It all works together. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to be pleased with you without faith. It's impossible for atonement to come without the shedding of blood. It's impossible for these things to happen. And that's why God the Father sent God the Son to die the death of atonement. And his blood was shed to be received by faith so that we could please God. It was the sinless man who made up for the mistake of the first sinless man who did the will of God the Father. Can you see how this works together? Earlier, Jesus himself declared in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. That's the will of God the Father. And that will cannot be accomplished without Jesus drinking from the cup of God's wrath. 
for when Jesus decides he will drink this cup and when he goes and he wakes through the kangaroo courts of the Sanhedrin and Pilate and when he hears the same crowd that once shouted, Hosanna in the highest, now cry out, crucify him. He knows the fickle nature of those for whom he came to die. And he knows the unchanging nature of him who sent him to die. And when he carries his cross, and when he carries our sin, and when he becomes sin for us, by placing our faith in what God does, by placing our faith in what God does, God the Son dying on the cross, God raising Jesus from the dead, and God the Spirit indwelling us as soon as we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on our cross, we are saved. Yes, Jesus came to save us all. But it could not happen without him being crushed, not just by the weight of our sin, but by the cup of God's own wrath. Can you see that it's God the Father's will that Jesus drink deeply the cup of his wrath? Can you see that this has always been the plan? This is not plan B. This is how it has always been decried. Yes. I hope you can see. And I hope that you will take these little cards and I hope that you will hand them out to your friends or to your people at church or to, uh, or, or to people at lunch or wherever you go. And before we even get to our second big question, I just have to plug, you know, give this to somebody. They might say, what's going on here? Oh, it says Easter. And you might not even be able to see what it says towards the bottom. You have to put your readers on like I do. Yeah. Can you see? Resurrection. Can you see? Father willed, Christ compelled, spirit led. This series will be all about the will of the Father, the compulsion by the Son, and the leading of the Spirit. And I hope you invite your friends to hear, your enemies to hear, your very neighbors to hear, and even strangers to come hear the truth of God proclaimed. But there's another question that we must address this morning. Can you see Jesus' clear self-identity? Can you see his clear self-identity? Now, the first sinless man in the first garden forgot who he was. Even though he was made by the very hand of God, and even though he was filled with the very breath of God, and even though he walked with God, and even though he experienced the glorious gifts of God, he forgot who he was. And having grown a little too big for his own, well, fig leaf britches, I suppose, he decided that he was going to take over for God. He was going to try to bump God from the throne of the universe, and that he was going to know. He wanted to be like God. He gave in to temptation. Do you understand that when we forget who we are, that's when we sin? It's when we forget who we are that we sin. When we forget that we are co-heirs with Christ, it's very easy for us to fall into temptation. When we forget that we are made in God's image, it's very easy for us to fall into temptation. When we forget who we are, sin looks very, very attractive. But Jesus knows exactly who he is. Jesus is God Almighty. In the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say to the Israelites. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. For God declared his name to Moses is I am. Now, in the Hebrew language, when it gets translated into Greek, Greek has two words for that phrase, I am. They are ego eimi. E-G-O-E-M-I. Ego and me. And so, 
I am is the divine name of God. Jesus has used I am in the book of John very, very often. Jesus has declared, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus has declared, I am these things. But there was a time when Jesus did not merely say, I am, and then put something that describes the nature of God. There's another time in the Gospel of John, verse uh, 58 of chapter 8, Jesus says, very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's not just seven I am statements in John. There's more. There's seven I am something statements that describe the nature of God. But when the Pharisees and the enemies of God seek to call Jesus out and he declares to them, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is saying in the most uncertain of ways to those who do not know, but the most clear of ways to anyone familiar with the Old Testament, I am. He's declaring divinity. Jesus knows that he is God. And so when Jesus is arrested in John 18, verses 5 and 6, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is because they're no dummies. They know full well the divine name of God spoken in the divine tongue of God by the divine Son of God carries with it power. This is not some non-miraculous time where Judas was so caught off guard, he was supposed to go kiss Jesus and let everybody know that's who he is. And now Jesus is declaring, I am. It's not that Judas falls back and then trips into Malchus, who trips into the other guy, who trips into the other guy, and 600 soldiers fall down like dominoes. It's not like that at all. Neither is it the divine power from Christ's nostrils knocks them down. He doesn't super breath them down. By revealing a slight beam of his divine majesty, knowing the humiliation he's about to endure, just as Christ always experiences a little flash of divinity at the exact same time of his greatest humiliation, it has always been this way. Remember the list. Jesus was born a humble birth, and yet his birth was declared by angels. Jesus was laid in a manger, and yet Jesus was proclaimed by a star. Jesus submitted to baptism, even though he was sinless, to fulfill all righteousness, and then God the Father declares, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. It's impossible to please God without faith. He fulfilled all righteousness through faith. He slept when he was tired, and yet he was awakened only to calm the storm, to assuage the fear of his friends. He wept when Lazarus died, and yet he called life from death. He's arrested now, but knocks them down. I am. And soon, he will be crucified, and he'll be killed himself. And yet up from the grave he'll arise, triumphing over all temptation, all enemies, and death itself. Yes, 
Can you see Jesus' identity? In John 17, Jesus prophesied what would happen just a little bit later. Jesus says to the Father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me, I am. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And Jesus, when he submitted to arrest, told them, you can take me, but don't touch any of them, despite my hothead Peter, and I got to plug Malchus's ear back onto his head, don't arrest any of them. I must fulfill what I have declared. And Jesus has protected all of them and has lost not a one because he is God. And the will of his Father is that he would lose none of those given to him, but instead he would raise all of them at the last. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning?